Support for the WSHU podcast Off the Path comes from Opair in America, cultural exchange childcare for more than 30 years. Opairinamerica.com. A wooded campus down the road from Princeton University was founded in 1930 to celebrate useless knowledge, but it's actually been very useful. It's led generations of scientific innovation, like one of the first computers, and it saved some of the world's greatest thinkers from the Nazis, including Albert Einstein. This is Off the Path from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan, usually on the road from New York to Boston, but on a detour through the Garden State for one more story. The address for the Institute for Advanced Study is One Einstein Drive, named after undoubtedly the most famous scientist to work here. The campus lies amid sprawling green meadows, oak trees, and a peaceful pond. I walk up to the front door and a deer trots right past me. I'm only a few miles from downtown Princeton, but it feels remote and pastoral. That's by design, according to the Institute's director, Robert Dykgroff. This is a place of peace and quiet, free from all the distractions of modern life. You know, it's like the center of a hurricane, you know, where there is no wind, it's, it's very silent. It's a place of concentration. People are looking inward, but people in their minds, of course, are having tremendous adventures. The Institute for Advanced Study doesn't have any classes or students. There's no regular daily agenda full of meetings and conferences. The scholars here don't even have to research any specific topic. They could spend their whole day walking the grounds or sitting by the lake. Whatever you do, it's something you you choose to do. People are really refreshed when they spend some time here. And most importantly, they have different thoughts. They have deeper thoughts. Often they come here with a specific project in mind and then decide to do something much more interesting. Education reformer Abraham Flexner founded the Institute with the help from the Bamberger family and their department store fortune. He wanted a place dedicated to useless knowledge, his term. He argued for it in his 1939 essay, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. I am pleading for the abolition of the word use and for the freeing of the human spirit. To be sure, we shall thus free some harmless cranks. To be sure, we shall thus waste some precious dollars. But what is infinitely more important is that we shall be striking the shackles off the human mind. Director Dykgraf wrote an update of Flexner's essay on useless knowledge. It expresses the fact that the pieces of research, knowledge that had the biggest impact on our lives started from free exploration of the world without any application in mind. Flexner had another goal. In the early 1930s, Europe was the center of the scientific world. He wanted the United States to make an impact too. So he reached out to his contacts at European universities for help, like Albert Einstein. Around that time, 1933, when he started to recruit faculty, uh, the situation in Europe changed dramatically. Einstein basically had to leave his country He was a refugee. Flexner sent Einstein a telegram and told him to get out of Germany carefully and come to America. 
have been authoritatively requested to ask you to enter this country quietly and inconspicuously. Give no interview on any subject to newspapers. Please keep cable absolutely confidential. Einstein was Jewish, like many of Europe's greatest scientists. They all needed a way out, as the Nazis took control first of Germany, then most of Europe. And in fact, this became something of an Ellis Island for scholars who often would come here with very small grants just to get them out of the country. Like the logician Kurt Gödel, Einstein's best friend and one of history's greatest minds in his own right. The Institute took in physicists and mathematicians, but also archaeologists, historians, economists, and more. Looking back, historians will say this is the moment where the center of gravity, intellectual center of gravity, moves across the Atlantic. Most scientists weren't household names, but some left an impact on the world that rivaled Einstein's, like John von Neumann, a Hungarian Jew who fled Germany in 1933. He did so many different things that you might imagine they're all different people. He's often said he's the smartest person who lived in the 20th century. And I think actually he was, it, it's difficult to say, but he was really smarter than Einstein. <laughs> Von Neumann was a towering figure in mathematics, economics, physics, you name it. He was one of the pioneers of game theory, and he designed nuclear weapons for the Manhattan Project. But he achieved maybe his most lasting accomplishment at the Institute. He built, actually here, the first modern computer, the von Neumann architecture. Architecture, as in structure, like a computing structure. He uh, didn't patent it. He sent blueprints all around the world. That's like everything we carry from our phones to our digital watches. They have uh, the von Neumann architecture. The Institute still has von Neumann's primitive computer in its archives, or at least a small piece of it. The full machine weighs half a ton. Archivist Caitlin Rizzo shows me a strange metal contraption in a glass case. You can see a lot of the actual screws holding things together, gasket, wire, a lot of rusted metal on this piece. And we can see some actual circuits and uh, wiring holding the computer together. Von Neumann didn't worry much about how it looked. One of the neat things about the early computer is that everything is so exposed and so immediate. So what becomes small and falls and folds into the back of your computer today is kind of out and proud. Von Neumann built that computer in the 1940s. Countless great thinkers passed through the Institute's doors since then, including Freeman Dyson and Robert Oppenheimer. He actually ran the Institute in the 1950s. There are about two dozen permanent faculty at any time. They're appointed for life. But there are dozens of visiting scholars who stay for a year or so, then take what they learn back to their universities. Karen Henson has been here for about a year. She's a historian who normally teaches at the City University of New York. Which is a huge institution that serves millions of students. She had an idea for a project, a book about the invention of the gramophone and the world of opera in the late 19th century. So she applied to the Institute to get time off and an academic stipend to write it. It's well known among scholars for being somewhere where you can get time to write, to focus on your research, and also for interdisciplinarity, so you have lots of different kinds of scholars together, and also um, a lot of scientists and mathematicians. Henson is a music historian and doesn't know much about technology. 
So she spends a lot of time talking to experts at the daily afternoon tea, the Institute's most beloved tradition. It's a free-form social club where scholars toss ideas back and forth. It was at one of these afternoon teas where Albert Einstein and a few colleagues came up with the idea of quantum entanglement, one of his greatest theories. And new theories still get hatched here. A dozen or so scholars mill about in the foyer, drinking hot black tea and eating cookies. Astronomer Brenda Fry is here on sabbatical from the University of Arizona. She explains her work to me and a few other scholars. I have a simple demonstration I can show you if you want. Fry studies how galaxies evolve. That means she has to wrap her mind around a mysterious substance called dark matter that might make up to something like 85% of the universe, even though we can't see it. I want to know what is dark matter. Can you hold it in your hand and point to it? But dark matter is very difficult to detect because it is invisible to us. We can only detect its presence indirectly. Fry uses a technique called gravitational lensing that examines how light passes by massive objects like stars. So it was Albert Einstein who first gave the correct prediction for the light deflection past the sun. And it's as a result of his work, we know that massive objects bend the light around them. So my work involves finding natural lenses like that in space and measuring the amount of the bending in order to gain insights into the dark matter. Sounds complicated, but Fry has worked a sort of parlor trick to explain it to her non-astronomical friends and colleagues. So what is required here is a wine glass, a piece of paper, and a pen. Draw a dot, ideally a kind of ovally shape, and fill it in on the piece of paper. Then place the wine glass on the paper and slide that wine glass across the dot. And what you see happening here, this dot appears to take on a distorted shape as looked at through the wine glass. Fry says that's what she does. She looks for distorted dots in space and tries to figure out what kind of natural lens distorted them. This can be done at any festive gathering because it doesn't involve the wine glass. I do recommend that you consume your favorite beverage first. Institute director Robert Digroff says the academic world has become more high pressure and regulated. If you're a scientist or a scholar, you have your grant applications, you have committee meetings, sitting at lunch, having a wonderful conversation about your field that lasts like for three hours. I think these moments are rare. But he says the history of the Institute for Advanced Study is full of those kinds of moments. And he thinks they've changed the world. I'm Davis Donovan. I'll be heading back from my detour to New Jersey and again on the road from New York to Boston on the next Off the Path from WSHU Public Radio.